So as this Lenten season ends and gives way to Easter, I've been really fascinated with liturgical baked goods. Yes, that's a thing, liturgical baked goods. You see, there's this impulse in kind of Christian tradition to tell the story of Jesus's passion and resurrection, not just using words, but using about any sense we have available to us, any of our senses imaginable. This goes way beyond like smells and bells to our very taste buds. So this season, for some of us, like I, I grew up, my, my mom's family's from New Orleans, so we always had king cakes. King cakes was how you kicked off Mardi Gras. I think we, I've never seen a king cake that beautiful on that screen. They're always like kind of crazy, kind of ugly and delicious. Or if you're a little more buttoned up, you, you might have had Shrove Tuesday and it was pancake day to clean out your, your cabinets. These kids love their pancakes, right? Or if you're Polish, maybe you had pa uh, Paskies. Is that what it's called? Anyone? They're jelly donuts, basically. It's a good way to, to round out ordinary time. But I think many of us know, at least of some of these traditions, but... How about the fact that hot cross buns, yes, like of that recorder anthem fame that most of you have done in like first grade music class, hot cross buns, that chart topping song comes from these actual baked goods that are associated with Good Friday because of their cross shape, they're made with spices, cloves to, to talk about Jesus's preparation for burial, and they have this, this kind of bitter sweetness that kind of tells the story better maybe than we could even with words. It tells it in our bodies. And this year, a new one to me comes from our sisters and brothers in the Greek Orthodox Church who have these things called Lazarakias. Like these are baked goods that look like Lazarus. <laughs> from, from what I can tell, these little guys kind of share a similar flavor profile to hot cross buns that you use cloves for the eyes, you know? It's, it's like a nice way, it's not too morbid, right? And they tell a lot of the same story. They happened about six days earlier on, on the Saturday that we do our Easter egg hunt, on, on the Saturday before Palm Sunday. They point towards Holy Week. So there's a lot of different interpretations, but they always, like the story we just read, when Lazarus comes out and he's got his hands bound and his feet bound, they always kind of look like this. I looked at a lot of pictures. There's a lot of like Pinterest fails to how you do these, and that's part of, part of the, the wonder because it's pretty hard to make like a mummified corpse out of dough, right? But these represent and anticipate Holy Week's emotional valleys and peaks. They act as signs that are tangible, like something like we did up here, tangible, physical signs that point to sometimes an intangible salvation found in Jesus' death and resurrection. And I think these beautiful and tasty, uh, uh, tangible things that we can buy cut into, spread butter on, and eat. I, I think it's beautiful and tasty practical theology for us. Because the death and resurrection is a very bodily thing. 
It's, it's not just a myth, it's an experience and a proclamation that we read earlier, and I think it was great that Meg got to read that because in the gospel stories, it always seems to be women that have like a privileged ability to know what's going on when God's doing something new. That Jesus conquered death by death and now lives. Stop looking in the grave because he's not here. That experience and that proclamation isn't just that there's hope that things are going to get better or that some spiritual future in heaven awaits us. It is, it is kind of all that, but it's more. It's that Jesus' fully human body, which was dead and was buried, has been raised by the same spirit that we've been given access to, that, that we're promised will walk with us. Because Jesus shared in our fate as humans who die, knows what that's like, how scary and how sad that is, when we believe into Jesus, we share in his fate as a truly human one who will never die again. That's the Easter good news. This still seems kind of confusing or just plain wild. Think about how it must have sounded originally, right? We're, we're in some ways a little inoculated to how wild this proclamation really is. I wonder if this might be a little reason why Jesus performed that last sign for Lazarus to kind of loosen us up, get us started on the idea of a semicolon or an ellipsis where there had always only and ever been a full stop. Death is the end. Now death not is the end. A few things stand out, though, how the raising of Lazarus by Jesus and Jesus is being raised by the Holy Spirit are connected. Just a few things this morning. There's probably more. But first off, I think they're substantially different. Here's what I mean by that. While Lazarus was raised from the dead, it says he was sleeping. And I'll take sleep to be kind of a euphemism for you're never going to wake up again. While Lazarus was raised from that sleep, Lazarus is going to die again. We might call this more of a resuscitation than a resurrection. You see, Mary, Lazarus' sister, is going to weep again. Even as we look at Jesus and we see Mary, Jesus' mother, who will not have to weep again because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection by the Spirit has this new character. We might even say it has a new creation character about it. We might say that it was atypical, like it never happened before, but also that it's prototypical. Like it's paving a new way for how things are going to be when our bodies are raised from the dead and given eternal life in Christ. Secondly, we might say that the raising of Lazarus is a sign that points to God's glory. It's typically the reason for these signs. Signs aren't for themselves, but because they point beyond themselves. Like the signs that we've explored, water to wine, healing, the feeding of the 5,000 plus, Jesus is walking on water. And now the seventh sign we find is sort of completion, like a more developed Polaroid picture about what God is really up to in Christ, namely defeating 
death. Because death is not only sin's consequence, the wages of sin are death, but death is sin's goal. Sin is going to destroy and unravel us. There's a thief who will come to kill, steal, and destroy, to make us less human, even as sin promises to make us more human, or more than we are. That's why baptism and Easter go so well together. Because they both proclaim the physicality that death can be and must be gone through to get into new, lasting, and glorious life. That's why in that baptistry, they entered in this way and they turned around. That's what repentance is, is, is turning around from death into life. That's why they were lowered and buried and raised to new life in Christ to proclaim this truth. We start to see the ways that the Lazarus story previews Jesus' story. The, the details in the story says Jesus was troubled at the graveside of Lazarus. And then a few chapters later, we see the same word. Jesus was troubled to his core in the Garden of Gethsemane for the suffering that he'd have to go to through because he was staring in the face of death in both cases. It says that Jesus cries out with a loud voice as he dies on the cross, and it's with the same loud voice that he cries out for Lazarus to rise and come out. As Lazarus's raising gives glory to God, and it confirms Jesus' special relationship to the Father, so Jesus' resurrection glorifies God and validates his identity as the one sent from the Father. The story of Lazarus, we might say, read back in your Gospel of John, is the center point of the Gospel, or the central pointer for the good news of Jesus. Lastly, we need to pay attention to a really important detail in this Lazarus story that gives us insight into the very heart of God in this renewal plan. At the center of the story stands this tiny sentence, and for anyone that grew up in youth group, this is like the sentence you use for your memory verse because it was Jesus wept, and that's all you had to remember, right? It's a favorite youth group memory verse. But I think that little sentence gives us an amazing insight into God's heart, what God was up to in Jesus. That in the middle of all that had happened and was to come, Jesus pauses to have a good cry over a dear friend, over the loss, albeit temporary, of this friend. The text says that Jesus comes, he observes, and he weeps. Knowing what we know, the excitement we have on Easter, we might expect something a little more victorious from Jesus, like a Vinny Vetti Vici thing, like he came, he saw, he conquered. But instead, it says, he comes, he observes, and he weeps. Who is the Savior? The psalmist, I think, connects these two polar experiences of victory and sorrow. Psalm 30 says, You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. 
so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Jesus shows us that suffering, pain, fear, and sorrow, all found in the cross, is always a prerequisite and always a companion to the joy, hope, vindication, and renewal of resurrection. You can't pry Friday and Sunday apart. They can't be separated. Mourning and sackcloth are the seedbed in the womb for dancing and joy. I think there's this beautiful parable of this just on our side yard in the Oak Church Garden. We have this whole quadrant of this garden with counterculture coffee bag burlap uh, on top of this soil. And it's prepping this soon to be ripe soil that is ready to burst with life and fruitfulness. But right now it looks really ugly and really sad. <laughs> well, I can't, I can't talk about Lazarus and not think of a painting. And I didn't put it up because it just doesn't do it justice. But this Christian, uh, Japanese-American Christian artist named Makoto Fujimura has this painting meditating on the tears of Jesus in this passage, which he calls the center of the gospel. And he tells a story about his friend, Steve Garber, who comes to this painting, who stands in front of it for about 20 minutes and begins to weep. And Garber, looking at this painting and, and contemplating Jesus's tears, which, which in some ways make no sense if, if you think that Jesus is only the strong Savior and doesn't, doesn't come into our very sorrow in the depths of our pain. And Garber comments in front of this passage, this painting, and he says, I would not be a Christian apart from the tears of Jesus. I think this is the most profound thing because I think it's true. I think we would not be Christians apart from the tears of Jesus. And I'm not sure that we can act Christianly if we don't start getting in the habit of stopping and having a good cry and identifying with the pain of the world, even as God is working renewal on every crack and crevice of this place. It seems that Jesus is always present to his place and to his people. And that often drives him to tears. Might ask yourself, when is the last time I've cried? And you probably didn't expect this line of questioning on an Easter Sunday, right? But if we could learn this art and discipline of being so attentive and unhurried and hopeful to cry over our neighbors, I think it would help us to, to plunge towards, to lunge towards glory and peace and new creation in the same way that Jesus does. First Lazarus, then Calvary, then new creation resurrection. One of my teachers in seminary always said, if it can't be happy, make it beautiful. If it can't be happy, make it beautiful. I think the story of Lazarus, which points towards Jesus's resurrection, is somehow able to hold these two things together. His tears promise that until our tears will be finally wiped away, so we enjoy God coming to dwell with his people. That's what's happening in Revelation 21. 
in this completely renewed heaven and earth. Until those tears are wiped away, our tears can be offerings of hope, offerings of beauty. For those who could be at our Good Friday gathering a few nights ago, you might hear in this a similar challenge. Your challenge is to be continually converted, to slowly and repeatedly develop this sort of resurrection imagination that makes it possible to look directly at a cross-stricken heap of flesh of our Messiah and see possibility, see hope that the Spirit will bring new life, that flowers might bloom out of barren ground, that the stumps of our own lives out of those things that God might allow green shoots to spring up. And when new life in Christ comes, we'll look for those tear tracks, those scars, those ax marks, and we'll remember and we'll hold that pain as a place not of God forsakenness, but of God's care and God's companionship and God's guidance that we'll proclaim and live into this more creative, durable, everlasting life given to us by the Spirit that we call resurrection. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for including us. We thank you for including us in Jesus' death. And in so doing, you put it to death our sin, our fear of death, our striving, our fleshly desires to take us away from you. You put those in the grave, you lay them down. And then you call us like Jesus called Lazarus, and you say, rise, come out, untie him, untie her, come on out. We thank you that unlike Lazarus, this resurrection life is durable and everlasting. That we're joined with Jesus as we believe into him. Lord, renew our minds, refresh our imaginations that we might go out of these doors and see little signs of your new creation springing up around us and that we might participate in what you're doing as you've gone ahead of us, as you've poured out your spirit so abundantly on this creation. Make us ministers of that new creation. Make us agents of that reconciliation. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.